Hello and welcome to Creative Offer Podcast, episode 103. This is uh, amazing, speaking to Debbie Millman today on the show, but first of all, we've got to do a few announcements. First of all, Creative Waffle Live, you can come see me and Matt Roth and Geo Law and some amazing design talent and illustrators on a live panel in London. Uh, there'll be a live Q&A, there'll be free beer, there'll be uh, design talks, design speeches, and the tickets are only £10. It's a very, very good price, very reasonable for the event and the menu that we've got, the, everything we're putting on. So if you're listening to this and want a ticket, you can uh, get it via the link in the description below. That's Creative Waffle Live 29 on the 6th of July tickets are available now also if you are on iTunes and you do feel like leaving a review you'll get a Creative Waffle pin badge anyone who leaves a text review on iTunes will get a Creative Waffle pin badge absolutely free Uh, just DM me once you've done it and we're away we'll send it to you so thank you very much and I hope you enjoy the podcast welcome to the podcast so first of all can I ask you how how do you introduce yourself when you're speaking to new people I just say I'm Debbie Millman. And you mean if people ask me, what do I do? Yeah, yeah. Um, I say that I'm a designer and author and educator and host of the podcast Design Matters. Can we start off with a quote from uh, some of your other talks that you've done with other podcasters? The longer it takes, the longer it will last, and the, and the more prepared you'll be for success when it comes. What, what, does, that, what does that mean? Uh, I think it's just a way of trying to make sense of the notion that um, it took me a really, really long time <laughs> to make something of myself. And it's just my way of trying to uh, both explain it and then also perhaps give people a sense that if they're struggling, that there's still hope. I think the longer it takes, the more you'll appreciate it. Right. I, I don't, I mean, for people that make it really quickly, Anyway, so so what was the question? I'm sorry. Yeah, I got so how much how much of a how much is it taking risks? How much is that a big oh, part? Yeah, I don't I don't know that I would say that I'm a big risk taker. I think that I've taken advantage of opportunities that have come my way. I wouldn't say that I have taken that many risky risks. You know, I've taken some risks that I felt were safe. You know, I mean I think Yes, it was taking a risk to start a graduate department um, at SVA, but it was something that had, you know, Steve Heller's backing and he was quite a big part of helping me launch this. So I don't know that it would have been seen as a really dangerous thing to Mm. try to do with one's life at that point. What about stepping out of your comfort zone? Because obviously it's something new to you. And also when the podcast as well, like you, when you got into podcasts, it was very early in the game. And I... Yeah, but it, when I started doing the, the podcast, it was a, this little rinky-dink internet radio show that I started primarily because I was feeling really creatively um, barren. I had spent the previous 10 years completely and totally dedicated to my work in branding, which was the first time that I'd ever really felt good at something or successful at something and so it was a way for me at that point to just try something in a very small way that was not going to really be a big risk it wasn't like i was going on television or wnyc and introducing and launching this brand new thing that nobody had ever heard of it was this tiny little internet radio network that had production services that sort of rivaled those of Garth and Wayne in yeah. Wayne's world. So 
it really wasn't a risk. I was doing it as a way to sort of save my creative spirit. And because it was live, I was asked by my friends who couldn't listen to it at that moment in time it was airing on Voice America, how they could listen to it if they weren't able to listen to it live. And so that was why, it was actually Brian e. Gomez Palacio, one of the co-founders of Speak Up, that recommended that I put it up on iTunes mm-hmm. so that people could listen to the show whenever they wanted to. And that's, and that's really how it all began. And that was in, I started the show February 4th, I think, 2005. Yeah. Wow. So you've you obviously seen the podcast landscape change quite a bit uh, over the time. Yeah. I mean, it's everything about it has changed. And people ask me all the time, you know, how did you know that it was going to be something that was so um, progressive and so on the edge? And I'm like, I had no idea. Bryony suggested that I upload it to iTunes so that my friends could listen to the show whenever they wanted to make it convenient for them. So I owe all of my success to Armin and Bryony. Are there any podcasts you listen to now? Any ones that you recommend? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm madly in love with uh, the podcast Hurry Slowly, which is something that Jocelyn Gly, Jocelyn K. Gly uh, puts out, which I think is really remarkable. It's my favorite podcast these days. And it's all about understanding our, or <laughs> my, <laughs> I'm not going to make this the the royal hour, um, my obsession with productivity and um, making things and, and just trying to feel that I'm more worthy through, through doing things than just sort of on my own. Jocelyn asks a really good question. What are you or who are you without the work? And, and that's something that I'm, I'm not sure I could answer. Yeah, absolutely. How about sort of patients and, and people that are coming out of school and, and you're obviously teaching uh, the SVNA. How about, how about that sort of the students coming out and then wanting everything straight away, especially with social media, everything's very instant uh, and, and people can't always get a job it's, straight away. Yeah, it's, it's completely um, unrealistic. It's completely unrealistic. I was telling students of mine last night, it was the last class of the fall, the fall semester for my undergrads and I was telling them that it's unrealistic to not only want or expect any success in your 20s, but I also think it's kind of dangerous because you then run the risk of doing your best work mm-hmm. early on. There are very few people that make it in their 20s that continue to keep making it in their 70s. Very few. And if you're one of the lucky ones, great. But if you're not, you want to build a career that's sustainable, that has an upward trajectory and an upward motion that allows you to continue to keep growing without having to look over your shoulder and think, okay, am I going to be better than I was when I did that? Mm. And, and that's hard. I mean, listen to Elizabeth Gilbert has a great uh, TED talk about how she was approaching doing her work after Eat, Pray, Love, which she acknowledged might be the most successful thing she does in her life. Well, then what happens? So I, again, rationalized to myself, well, maybe I didn't have that big giant success, but yet, but there's still time to do that. Yeah. I don't die, you know? What about the students that are coming out of the design schools? Are they thinking that they're going to get a design job in an agency or are they hoping to get a work for themselves and get a few clients under their belt? 
working in the... Um, I think that most of my students are really looking to have the work experience uh, where they are employed by somebody else. I, I think that's smart, unless you're a real wunderkind. I think that it's wise to learn from others for as long as you possibly can and see what works and what doesn't in another environment before you then launch your own and expect to be able to know what to do. I mean, it's very, very difficult when you get out of school. First of all, it's hard to get a job to begin with, let alone find enough clients to sustain, to sustain a lifestyle in New York. Mm. It's really hard. Yeah, especially New York or a big city like London or, or Paris or one of these big metropolitan cities where it costs a lot of money to live as well. Um, now, where are you from? Uh, just outside London, yeah. Okay, so I'll be in London in May for the DNAD Festival. Amazing, amazing. Maybe, maybe a cross paths, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what, what sort of stuff are you teaching them? Uh, do you teach them like business stuff as well, or is it mainly just design because they're focused on getting a job? No, in? my job isn't about uh, design at all, really. It's about my undergrad class is called Differentiate or Die, how right. to get a job when you graduate. Nice. And it's about how to represent your ideas, represent your portfolio, begin to make a name for yourself, begin to position yourself in the marketplace how to create a mission statement, how to speak in front of others, um, how to conduct an interview. So it's, it's all very practical, skill-based knowledge for their next step in life. And then the graduate program is a master's program in branding. And that is really about a, a whole slew of disciplines that come together to create the world of branding. So it's cultural anthropology, behavioral psychology, anthropology, uh, semiotics, linguistics, um, ergonomics, statistics, um, market research, creativity, and so forth. Is that, is that something that you think that doesn't get taught enough in, in schools and in design schools? Because I, I was never really taught the sort of business side of it. Um, it um, well, my, my, my program is, I would say, about 50% business, 50% creative. My undergrad class is 100% business in the creative field. And yeah. that's, it's very rare for those types of classes. I think I'm probably the only person at SVA that actually teaches students how to go about finding a job when they graduate. Mm. Do, you, do you think that that's something that should be included more? And how is it important? How important it is compared to? I do you know. think it should. Because it's one thing to have a great portfolio and quite another thing to be able to talk about that portfolio. And having a great portfolio does not give you uh, the automatic pass in an interview. You still have to be able to articulate your ideas, who you are and how you represent your work is as important as the work. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think the, the future of design education is going to be more people looking online stuff or, or do you think they'll still be going to colleges and getting taught by the likes of yourself? Oh, I think it really depends on the person's needs, their location, their finances. I prefer teaching face-to-face -face because I like to be very engaged with the students via body language and the things that they're not saying. But my brother got, uh, he got his uh, doctorate degree in pharmacology online and it was really hard and he had to really push himself and kill himself for a couple of years but finally got it. So I think it really depends. He could not go away to school somewhere because he's um, a father and a husband and you know couldn't 
manage to go away somewhere to, to school. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, the find online courses it can be. There's so many different things now, and so many good things that, um, that yeah, it can be a bit of a balance. And you also self learn as and uh, as well as going to college and university. Um, yeah, you could end up with loads of debt, but I don't know. Do you think the the student loans and and things would would really put people off? Because I, I think that's something that worries a lot of students at the moment is student loans, and that's why people are going more online. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, I, I mean, I, I came out of school with $5,000 of student debt, but I graduated 35 years ago. Yeah. And I remember at the time feeling overwhelmed by that amount. Now, $5,000 is a lot more then than it is now, but I was really, I mean, there were, there were months where I didn't know if I could pay my rent, my student loan bill, or get enough food. I mean, it was that hard. Mm-hmm. So I can only imagine what it's like, what it's like now. And I, I just have a lot of um, respect for people that are able to do it and try as an instructor and an educator to really make my programs in the classes that I teach way worth the money. Yeah, absolutely. And do you find any students come up to you and say, I'm really, I'm really struggling with the money side of it? Or how did you deal with it as well? Yeah. But what sort of advice would you give to someone like sort of struggling with the money money side of university? To try to look for scholarships. Right. I mean, we, we do have some scholarships at SVA. So when somebody is in real need, um, or I would talk to the president of the school who might be able to make arrangements, um, or I might recommend a state school. I went to state school. I went to State University of New York at Albany. I had an amazing time. I loved it. It was an incredible experience. I don't know that you necessarily need an Ivy League education or a super expensive education to have a good education. So I think I'm a perfect example of somebody that's been able to um, really um, do well through the New York City public school system, as well as the New York State university system so mm-hmm. i have no complaints about my education at all so i would say look for alternatives that don't cost as much cool do many of your students come from overseas or is it all mainly america based no no it at sva i would say at least half of my students are uh from outside the united states and we love that we love the diversity we love the different ways of thinking brands are completely global now and so having that perspective is super important to me. Awesome. Uh, talking about global brands, uh, what, what was it like working on the Burger King rebranding? And, and can you talk a bit more about that project? Oh my goodness. Well, that was a long time yeah. ago. Still the current logo, so that's nice. It was 20 years ago. I worked on it in 1999. And uh, I don't know if you remember at the time, but the logo was a bun and then Burger King and then a bun. I'm, I'm going to be honest, I wasn't born. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> if, if you want to look it up, it's, it's, fun thing, it's a fun thing to look at, yeah. to see what it looked like. Um, and we, uh, Burger King's headquarters uh, are in Miami, Florida. And so my team and I went to Florida for the kickoff. And we got into the elevator with the director of market research. I'll never forget this. And he said, don't get your hopes up for ever being able to bring to market a new logo. We're like, how do you kick off a project with that kind of optimism? <laughs> and the reason he said that was because the logo, they had attempted to redesign the logo several times over the previous few years, and uh, consumers never liked what 
they were testing in the market research and the global market research that they were doing. Mm. And we did some eye tracking and found that we could have the words, hello there, in between the buns, which were, you know, it was buns, Burger King bun. We could have bun, hello there, bun. Show it to people in one second, and they would think that they were seeing Burger King because right. people don't read. They look at the, first and foremost, they see color, and then they see shape, and they see numbers, and then if they're still paying attention and they can read the language that whatever it is is in, then maybe they'll read. And so what that was telling us when we looked at the previous identities, they were, they were really nice looking identities, but they were so far from where the original Burger King identity was that we knew that we really had to keep a lot of the inherent integrity intact in the existing iconography. And so we kept the buns, but we activated them. We kept the bubbly type, but we sharpened up a lot of the edges. We activated the whole thing so it had a lot more energy. And um, we tested it globally and it proved to be statistically significantly um, more popular than the current at the time and then launched. And it's been the logo for 20 years now. Is that, is that like, it must be one of the proudest moments just to see that like globally, just so, in so many countries. I mean, it's amazing because I travel a lot and it's amazing to go to other countries and see the work that I've done on the shelves in supermarkets or drugstores. It's just phenomenal. And it's incredibly humbling and it's also super exciting. When, when it first came out, did, did anyone get, I guess you tested it first, that's how it works, I suppose. But when we see a lot of big rebrands, some, a lot of the public on social media and things, um, and just general public feedback, it's always quite bad because people don't like change. Oh no, people, I got killed. I got killed. Yeah. I, was, I was bullied. I was horrifically <laughs> bullied. Um, I was called a she-devil. I mean, <laughs> It was really bad. I was really, really raked through the coals over that logo. Wow. Um, but you know what I tried to tell the people, the haters that that, and and those people are now my friends, so I'm all is forgiven. Um, what I tried to express and communicate to people was that we very carefully, very deliberately tested the logo all over the world. Burger King was not interested in bringing out a logo that consumers hated. You know, they weren't interested in pushing the envelope that far and hoping people would go along with them. They wanted something that people would like. So we tested it really rigorously all over the world and consumers really liked it. So it comes down to, well, what, what are we evaluating and why are we evaluating it in the way that we are? All of the brouhaha that happens now over logos and redesigns tends to die down within a year. Yeah. You know, the very people that were horrified by Uber's redesign of a year or two ago, were horrified again when they redesigned recently as if that was somehow sacrosanct and couldn't be touched. Um, the Airbnb identity was crucified when it first came out. Now people love it. So I think people just don't like change. It makes them feel vulnerable. Anything uncertain is perceived negatively. There isn't that, oh, it'll be great when people get to get used to it mentality. It's, oh my God, civilization is doomed because this has changed. You know, most people don't like changes in what they see and what they experience. The only people that really like brand identity redesigns and package redesigns are the designers that are doing them. Nobody else is looking at a, a package and thinking, oh, would you look at that, Tropicana redesigned, let's give it a shot. It's got, maybe it's better. You know, nobody thinks that way. 
So that, that sort of begs the question, why does design matter? Well, design matters because everything that we see impacts how we behave. And the condition of branding and design reflects the condition of culture. Um, I'm super excited about a lot of what's happening now in branding because I feel that in many ways, for the first time in 10,000 years, branding's become democratized. People, regular people, not brand designers, not brand consultants, not brand strategists are making and creating brands to signify movements. So Me Too, Black Lives Matter, um, these, these are brands because it's, cre it's manufactured meaning around some idea. And, right. and that's what brands are. It's manufactured meaning that we all agree then on that manufactured meaning. So we, somebody creates this meaning around something and then everybody else either agrees or disagrees. If we disagree, we can have wars, you know? If we agree, then we have a market. Mm -hmm. 10,000 years ago, we did that with the advent of, of religious symbols. You know, even, even depending on, no matter what your view of a higher power is, somebody human created that mark. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. that, wasn't, that wasn't given to us by a higher power. Somebody created that mark to represent meaning. It's manufactured meaning. And then everybody agrees that this thing means something. If somebody thinks that something else means more than that thing, then we have war. You know, yeah. that's why we have religious wars because somebody thinks that their manufactured meaning around whatever it is, is better than somebody else's. In terms of what's happening now, branding is now democratized. We are looking at a, a world where people can create a brand that signifies a movement that represents how we want the future to be. And that's the first time since 10,000 years ago that we're doing that. It's not about market share. It's not about a return on an investment. It's not about money at all. It's about change. It's about ideals. It's about a view of how we want to see the world. So that's why we need, that's why design matters. So people are coming more close, closer to brands and actually sort of making them lifestyle brands and, and making them part of them is that what you mean well no i don't mean no i don't mean that at all i i mean that we are able to create a tribe around an idea right. that then can motivate and inspire change right so if there's a group of people that believe that black lives matter they will ensure that black lives matter yeah if there's a group of people that are saying me too then it's taking away the shame of others saying me too. Once that shame begins to disappear, then we're looking at a world where it's less likely to happen because the shame is gonna to move to the people that actually perpetrate the crimes. Okay. And so that's, that's what I'm most excited about. Cool. Uh, what makes a strong brand for you? What, what, what would you set out to create? What, what sort of highlights a strong brand? A strong idea. Strong idea. Cool. Deliberate differentiation. That is what it requires. Something that is very distinctly different from anything else that helps to improve a life, that helps to, um, that offers to provide something that hasn't been, hasn't been provided before. There are really, really good examples of that in the world that you notice and, and see. What do you think? Oh, well, I'm going to guess 
sort of Apple and, and the big brands that we everyone recognizes. But all the brands that I just mentioned, I think Black yeah. Lives Matter, I think Me Too, Time's Up. Apple's done historically a very good job. Um, Starbucks has done a good job. Mm. But, you know, they go in and out of popularity and their market share goes up and down depending on that popularity. Nike's doing a particularly good, as having a particularly good year. Um, I think they've done a, a good job with their messaging and their branding. Yeah, absolutely. For smaller businesses, though, how, how, can, how can they be seen with that brand? How, how can they get that message across and, and just populate up? I guess it's like, how do you grow as a brand? Um, same well, with- first, first and foremost, you need a great idea. Yeah, and keep putting it out there. Going to excite people. Mm. And now, because of social media, it's so much easier to be able to communicate that idea. And so you see a lot of new brands on Instagram. You see a lot of new brands being able to grow through their advertising on social media. Yeah. Because they can go direct to the app or the site. And it doesn't cost anywhere as near it might cost to advertise on television, to slot something in a supermarket, which costs a great deal of money, to get Walmart interested, which is a gargantuan effort. So going straight to consumer is a whole new way of marketing now and growing brands that will continue to evolve. Yeah. What's um, what's what's it like working with these big brands, and and how does the process differ, if any, to working with smaller companies? Well, I don't think that the requirements are any different. I think that when you're working with a small company, you tend to be working with the owner, or the uh, inventor. Yeah. Um, in a large company, you tend to be working with brand managers, and there's a lot of corporate decision making by committee which is hard. But then again, when you're working with a small company, they don't tend to know as much. They are much more insecure because this is their baby and they might have a very limited amount of money. So everything has to work. Can't, there's really very little room for mistakes. Um, I prefer to work on large brands just because I like the scope. I like working with a lot of people and I like doing market research and I like understanding what motivates people to choose something. So smaller brands tend not to have that type of approach because they don't have the money to do big global research. But I really love to understand global motivations and why some, somebody in one particular market might be attracted to something that somebody else in another market might not be. Right. Yeah. So I guess if you're a really small one-person design company or, or you're working for yourself, how would you attract these big people? Do you just do loads of good work and then it eventually? Not, not if, if I mean, I, it's, it's very unlikely unless you're a superstar like a Peter Saville or a Sagmeister mm. where you have a very, very strong reputation for doing work that really makes a difference that captures people's attention. It's, it's I, I don't even know if it's possible for a one or a two person shop to yes. get a big, giant global assignment because they just don't have the ability to execute across the globe. It's just, it's just not possible unless yeah. they partner with somebody and then they're not small anymore. So. Yeah. So how, how do you think Sackmeister has managed to do it? He's brilliant. He's brilliant. <laughs> he's, he's fearless. He's extremely talented. He's extremely smart. 
um, he's a trifecta of, of ability. Yeah, is it just? Yeah. Again, I mean, he, he might be working on some big, large brands yeah. outside of the United States, but I don't even know that he'd have any interest in doing something like Tropicana or Pepsi. Although, who knows? You know, I'm not, I'm not working with or for him, so I have no way of knowing what he's interested in, in doing or not doing. But there's a far less creative freedom in those types of jobs. So I would imagine that either the constraints would interest him or the constraints would terrify, not that terrify, horrify him. Yeah, he seems like one of the guys that would be more uh, sort of like to take control of it and sort of get get the ideas out there and really go for something wild rather than just stick to brand guidelines. It's hard to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, Finally, well, the last few questions is: what, first of all, what's your best purchase under a hundred dollars? My Apple Pen, which cost ninety nine dollars. Apple pencil. Nice. When I do, bought it, it was ninety nine dollars. It's probably more now. You do a lot of uh, drawing and stuff on the iPad. I do. Mm. Is that a good way to relax, or, or how, why, why is that? I just love doing my work that way. It's very portable. Yeah. And I like to do everything handmade. You know, I draw, almost all of the work I do has some handwritten, hand-drawn, illustrative element to it. So mm. this allows me to take my studio with me anywhere. Uh, how important is that for creative people just to keep making like stuff with their hands rather than always on digital? Because there's a lot of people that just go straight to digital now and not even sketching. See, because of, because I'm so old, it's not something that I could ever have done. You know, I do. I love. I'm I'm now working at the intersection of hand done and technology by being able to do it all in my iPad. Yeah. Um, or a lot of it. I don't do it all. I still love doing things on big giant pieces of paper. Um, but it makes it a lot easier to do work wherever I go, mm. and and that is something I just love. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really handy. Do you think they'll bring out sort of touchscreen iMacs and, and like some, because it, it feels like they're lacking with that. It feels like the, the Apple need to bring out the touchscreen iMacs so you don't need the iPad, you can just draw straight on the screen, something a bit more tactile. That's what I love about it. It's very tactile. I don't yeah. like working with a mouse. I don't, I don't like working um, just completely digitally. So this, this is that great bridge for me. Yeah. Uh, what, what's your best advice to young podcasters? <laughs> Research as much as you can, read everything, uh, listen to other podcasters and learn how they create the arc of a conversation so that you can develop your own way in to connect with people. Um, I think, and I've said this before, but I think it's, it merits saying again, I think a really good interview is like a game of pool, like a game of billiards, where you're not only trying to get one ball in a hole, you're trying to also leave enough balls on the table in the right position to get more in. And so it gives you a chance to be able to um, see the whole conversation at once and then work towards it. Yeah, I guess like asking questions where it, it will be leading to a conversation, not just one, one, one answer. Exactly, exactly. I also tend not to like to ask questions that I know that, whoever I'm interviewing has been asked a million times. Yeah. I'd like to then look at some of the answers to those million times they've gotten the question and then asked about their answers. So this way it's still educating my audience on who that person is and why that question has been asked 10,000 times, but it then gives it a bit more context so that I can take it to a new place. Mm, absolutely. Uh, I'll take that into consideration. For, finally, how do you want to be remembered? How do I want to be remembered? Smart, generous, 
open-hearted, kind. Yeah, well, you're definitely extremely kind for your time to me. So thank you very much for that. Oh, um, it's a, it's, it's wonderful to talk to you. I think you did a really, really nice job and made it super easy and a lot of fun. I got a bit nervous at the start, but we get we got there. We got there. I do too. Uh, I always get nervous at the beginning of my podcast. Don't worry, that's normal. It means it means something to you. Yeah, yeah. I guess. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for putting all the stuff out on the on social media and and uh, the podcast you've done and and just inspiring people. So, um, where can people find you and actually listen to your podcast and, and say hello? iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, my website, debbiemillman.com, or on Twitter, Debbie Millman, Instagram, you know, the usual places. It's called Design Matters for anyone listening. Design all right. Yes. I'm sure they would already notice. My I mean. than I do. Design Matters. Design <laughs> Matters. I say Design that, Matters. Design Matters. So much more elegant. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much for this. My pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Creative Full Podcast. It was amazing to speak to someone I've looked up to for such a long time and I've admired the podcast, the Design Matters podcast, for a long, long time and inspired me to start my own podcast. So yeah, thank you very much for Debbie uh, for, for speaking to me and for you guys for listening. Um, I'll see you in the next episode.